Annika and Kristen. Appreciate that. All right, well, uh, greetings once again. Um, as we begin today's message, we're going to be in Romans 3, 21 through 31, and uh, we're going to read that in just a minute. Uh, but I'm actually going to start back all the way in verse 9 just to get the feel of it. I want you to feel the weight of this as we get to the good news in verse 21. So I want y'all stand up. The first part of it's not going to be on the screen. So y'all miss that. But then when we get to verse 21, you can pick up on the screen, okay? Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In our text this morning, verse 21, but, just pause right there, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather this morning around your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. And we're so grateful that you reveal yourself through the word. And we pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us this morning in your truth. Your word is truth. We pray that you would bring your word in power 
like they said in Corinthians, that, Lord, when your word was preached, Lord, that people knew that you were in the place, Lord, you were in the room speaking, Lord, your very word, your very breath breathing on us, Lord, would you do that, and would you unite it by power, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, would it fall in power on every heart that is here, Lord, would you Search us and know us and show us if there be any wicked way in us, Lord. And would you lead us into the way everlasting? Would you open up in our hearts and our minds, Lord, and let us see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Let us see your beauty, Lord. You said where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I pray that you'd pour out liberty in this place through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you pour out liberty as I preach and proclaim your word, Lord, that if there's anything hindering us, Lord, any sin, any unbelief, you would eradicate it. You would drive it out. You would replace it with a, with a deep, fervent, solid trust and dependency upon you, God. Lord, I don't know if it's been the same with my brothers and sisters in the room, but Lord, I feel like that I have been in the middle of a battle, Lord, like your word says in Ephesians, Lord. And we just admit this morning that we're not stronger than Satan and his demons, but you are. Lord, you have all sovereign authority and power. Lord, he is on a leash, Satan is, and you are God. You are Yahweh alone. And so, Lord, let us be strong in the strength of your might today. Let us put on the full armor of God. Let's stand up against every attack of the enemy. Lord, would you help us to remember that we're in Christ, we're united to Christ, and that's our only hope in life and in death. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would get the victory this morning. Lord, I pray that like the end of Romans says, you would strengthen us believers by your gospel this morning. And I pray for anyone in this place who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you would set them free. Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty of the gospel as if it was for the first time that it would be electric, it would be magnetic, it would draw them powerfully, Lord, and you would save them, you would redeem them. Lord, help us this morning. We need you. We love you. We pray it all in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, as Eric mentioned last week, all mankind is broken and we deserve judgment because of our sin. And we are equally guilty before God and universally held accountable. That's what all of Romans 2 and 3 have been talking about. And if you're thinking, I know, uh, I know I'm in trouble, but obeying the law will get me out of this dilemma. You'd be wrong, according to Paul, right? That would be misunderstanding the function or the role of the law. The law is not for rescuing. Look at Romans 3.20 again. We just read over it. It says, for by the works of the law, what does it say? You, you repeat it to me. No human being, what? Will be justified in God's sight. The law is not our life preserver, okay? Well, what's it for then? What's the law for, Paul? Well, the law is for revealing. Look at the rest of Romans 3.20 from last week. It says, since through the law comes what? You tell me. What is it? You read it. Knowledge. Knowledge of sin. So the law is not our life preserver. You're like, am I going to have to interact this morning? Yes. <laughs> it's not our life preserver. It is a flashlight, so to speak, right? Or to say it a different way, the law is an MRI that diagnoses the problem instead of delivering us from the problem, right? 
Or say it like this, the law is more like a railroad track that points you into the correct destination, but it's powerless to get you there, right? So if the law reveals our sin, Paul, but cannot rescue us from our sin, can we even be rescued? I mean, that's where we have to get this morning. We're like, is there any hope for sinners, right? All around the world, is there any hope for lost people? In Paul's language in Romans 3.20, he'd ask it in a slightly different way. He would say, is there any hope for sinful people to stand justified before a holy God? Is there any hope for sinful, broken people all the way down to the core of their very nature and being? Is there any hope that they could have right standing before God Almighty? If, if There's no hope in our good efforts, in our good deeds, and in our works. And Romans 3, 21 through 31 is answering Paul's question this morning. That's what that whole section is doing. Is there any hope of rescue? Is there any hope of justification if we can't do it by our works? And Paul's screaming, yes, there is. Your only hope is Jesus. That's why Romans 3, 21 through 31, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said this. He believes this text that we're viewing this morning is the chief point in the very central place in the book of Romans. And for that matter, the central place of the entire Bible. Somebody was saying, hey, I'm not gonna be there for the sermon this morning. You know, am I gonna miss anything? And I'm like, you're missing everything, right? <laughs> Leon Morris, a commentator in Romans, of Romans 3, 21 through 31 said of this section, it's possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So what does that mean? This would be a bad sermon for you to sleep in, okay? That's part of what it means. The title of my sermon this morning is Jesus, Our Justification. Jesus, Our Justification. So again, Paul has labored for roughly two or three chapters telling us, you're sick, you're sick. The whole world is sick with a terminal disease and you can't beat it on your own and no doctor can beat it for you. Nothing you can do can beat it. And then... Romans 3.21, the curtain opens and Jesus, our remedy, steps in, our only remedy. The first point, justification is by faith in Jesus alone. And we see this in several verses. Justification is by faith in Jesus alone. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, or it could also be translated the justification from God, has been manifested apart from the law. And then look at verse 22. The righteousness, or again, it could be translated, or the justification from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's the thing. The law demands perfect righteousness, but it can't supply it through us. So this is what God does. He personally steps in. He personally comes down into time and history in the person of Jesus Christ so that he can provide sinners a new justified or righteous status. Justification, that's a legal declaration that is made on our behalf the moment we believe. Now listen, it can never be added to. It can never be improved upon. It can never be taken away. It can never be lost. When you are justified, you can never be more justified. You're like, hey, later down the road, if I do better things in the Christian life, will I be more justified? No, you'll never will be more justified than you were the day that you believed the good news of Christ. This means there is now hope for the judge to bang down his gavel and say over the war criminal, 
that not only is the war criminal forgiven of all his crimes, but that he also stands perfectly heroic, actually deserving of the Congressional Medal of Honor. You're like, what? That's crazy. There's no possibility for that. Paul says there is. How, how, how? The answer is the perfect son of God offered up for you in your place. That's the answer. As one pastor says, Christianity is the only place that offers this. Outside of the good news of the gospel, we must develop a righteousness on our own and offer it up to God and say, hopefully and anxiously and fingers crossed, please accept me, God. But only the gospel says that God has provided a perfect righteousness through Jesus and he offers it to us and by it, we are eternally accepted before God. Isn't that beautiful? It's the message of the gospel. It's so amazing. It's so beautiful. Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness, again, or justification of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in verse 23, he says, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says the justified status comes to us when we put our faith in Jesus. So here's the question. What is faith? All right, so y'all think about that for a minute. What is faith? So this is what faith is not. Faith is not an indifferent or half-hearted acknowledgement of certain facts in the Bible. That is not what faith is. The Greek word for faith is pistis, and it carries the idea of leaning your, all of your weight onto something, or it carries the idea of joining yourself to something or someone. Faith really, at its essence, is an abandonment of self completely and a total surrender to Jesus Christ. It could be said like this, faith is an empty hand that opens up and says, I have nothing to offer you, to you God, so that you could save me. <laughs> I have nothing. Look, my hands are empty. But then at the same time, those empty hands cling desperately, tenaciously, and completely to Jesus for salvation. <laughs> That's faith. Nothing in my hands I bring, God. Simply to your cross I cling, God. That's what, that's what faith is, right? Paul says that faith in Jesus, that faith in Jesus alone is what saves. Look at verse 28. I know it's skipping down. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith. What's the next word right there in verse 28? Apart. Apart from works of the law. What does that mean? It means that a person's works play no part in the decision of God to justify sinners. It depends zero, not at all, not even one bit on a person's efforts. Isn't that good news? You remember that hymn? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest, what, frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other grounds is sinking sand. Like even your best deeds, it's sinking sand, right? Even your best efforts on your best day is sinking sand. You're like, what about my faith? Like my strength of my faith? No, that's actually sinking sand too. But the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, he is a firm foundation. You lay your life on him. That's what we're talking about. 
Second, justification by faith alone has always been God's way of justifying sinners. Look at verse 21. That's why when Paul is talking in verse 21, he interjects this phrase in here, mid-thought. And this is the phrase he interjects. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's like, Old Testament, ding, 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 ding. Old Testament, look to Old Testament. The point, don't think that justification by faith is the way it happened in the New Testament, but justification by works is the way it happened in the Old Testament. Have you met people that think like that? I've heard a lot of people, I used to probably think like that as well. But Paul says, remember the law. Remember what the prophets taught. Sections like Genesis 15, 6. We read it in our reading plan, right? Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited or accounted to him as what? You tell me. Righteousness. That is, in spite of all his bad doings, did Abraham do some bad things? He did. And that is before he could do anything good, he believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness from God. Think on text in the prophets like Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Jesus coming, right? It says, out of the anguish of his soul, he, God, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, my servant, Listen to this verse, make many to be accounted righteous and he, Jesus, shall bear their iniquities or sins. Isn't that beautiful? This is not a new thing. This is not something that Paul came up with like in the New Testament. Sinners have always been justified by faith alone, either looking forward in anticipation to the Messiah, to Jesus, or by looking backwards in the rearview mirror at Jesus as he laid his life down for sinners. Third point, justification by faith alone is a grace gift. Paul says in verse 23, you can check it out in 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by, you tell me, his grace as a what? You tell me, a gift. Paul again mentions the problem he's de been developing in the opening of Romans, right? And he uses a little bit different of language to explain it here. He says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And I take this to mean that nobody in this room and nobody in the world has ever magnified God's greatness to the degree that they should, right? No person has ever loved, trusted, and served God from the heart like they ought. We have all failed to let God's weightiness and worth impact us so we could live for him like we should, and sin has been the result of that, right? The phrase fall short is actually kind of like an archery term, and I know some of you guys have done archery before. And it's not just Paul saying that the arrow was shot at the bullseye and it fell just short into the ground before the bullseye. We weren't even close. Like we weren't even on the same continent as the bullseye, right? That's Paul's point. That's why the mention of justification in the very next verse is so staggering. How being in right standing is just an amazing thing is because of the fact that we don't deserve it. So what is grace? Well, grace is unearnable, undeserved love coming to you as a gift. And some translations mean, say, freely given, right? This means God justifies or declares sinners righteous, not because they are do it, 
or they are owed it, but rather, like Eric said earlier, that his compassion compels him to offer it. His compassion and his love to give his best gift to the most unworthy recipients. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God's love. It's like a parent, kids in the room. If I'm talking to my child and my child is super rebellious, being mean to all of his siblings, has never cleaned their room in their life. And I said, hey, I know you deserve a spanking or some other form of punishment, but instead I'm gonna take that punishment on myself. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna go get some ice cream and play video games all day, right? Did that kid deserve ice cream and video games all day? No, that kid deserved a whooping. You know what I'm saying? Right? And that's the beauty of this grace gift of salvation. I think the picture of this justifying grace can be seen in the prodigal son parable. You guys are familiar with that, right? The father ultimately takes the debt of a squandered inheritance upon himself, right? He takes that debt upon himself. You see the father running and embracing a rebel son, right? With a hug and a kiss, like that affection, declaring over him a title that he's, he doesn't deserve. He says, this is my son. What a declaration. This is my son. That declaration is a grace gift. This is my now daughter. That is the glory and the beauty of grace for sinners. You can also see this justifying grace in Luke 18, 9 through 14. It is beautiful as well. The Pharisee, you remember that? That story, the Pharisees like listening out how awesome he is. Like, I'm amazing. I've done this and that. And God, you should be really happy about all that I've done, right? By contrast, the tax collector in Luke 18 announces before God and others in the place all of his sins and points out his desperate need for mercy. And he cries out to the Lord in that moment. And this is what he says. Help me, ultimately. I'm needy. I desperately need mercy. And before the tax collector has a chance to do anything for God or make up for his past failings as if he could, Jesus says of the tax collector who by faith is crying out for grace that he doesn't deserve, for mercy that he doesn't deserve. This is what Jesus says to that guy. He says of him, this man, not the Pharisee, this man, this needy man who understands his need for grace, he went to his house justified. Same language. He went to his house justified. Point four. You're like, how many points are there? Well, there's eight this morning, okay? <laughs> justification comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't use the, the word redemption very much, Right? not used very often if you're not in a church context. Maybe you use it when you turn in a coupon at the grocery store and you get money off that box of cereal. Does anybody coupon anymore? Anybody cut the coupons like you used to do? Okay. Or if you're going through difficult times and you have to sell your grandma's fine china at a pawn shop. I don't know if anybody ever done something like that. And then you come back later because you got to buy it back before your wife sees that you sold. No, I'm just, kidding. just joking. Uh, then you would be redeeming it in that moment, right? 
Or if you turn in a voucher at work during Thanksgiving, several of you guys have told me of this scenario. You get a voucher at work and you turn it in uh, and you redeem a turkey at the grocery store. You're like, yes, I got a turkey, right? We might use the word redeeming or redemption. So in that scenario, the last one, how much did you pay for that turkey to go free? What's the answer to that question? Nada, someone says, nothing, right? Nothing, because your company paid the full price of redemption. You got it? But who went home with the turkey? You did, right? This means the redemption wasn't truly free because the person who made it possible picked up the check for you, right? Spiritual redemption is the exact same way. My slavery to sin, listen, listen, was so bad that the perfect son of God had to die in my place. He had to shed his blood to purchase the pardon for this turkey. You know what I'm saying? Right? Ephesians 1, 7 says of Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amen? Guys, let's get excited up in here. This is our hope, right? This is so, so beautiful. All right, this leads me to my next point. Point five, justification satisfies God's righteous judgment. Look at verse 25 through 26 if you're following along. The question Paul begins to get at is this. Listen, if you're like, what does all this mean? His question is, how in the Old Testament did God justly forgive drunks like Noah, liars like Abraham? You've been reading the reading plan this week? Lingerers like Lot, doubters like Moses, murderers like King David. Do I need to go on? For that matter, how does God forgive anyone and still remain just? I thought Psalm 89, 14 said righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. I thought Proverbs 17, 15 says that the one who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So if the Lord's gonna justify the wicked, how does he keep from being an abomination to himself? Great question. How does God remain righteous but patiently forbearing to sinners in the Old Testament in any time, right? How does he pass over former sins of Old Testament saints? Here's the answer. Well, he didn't pass over them in the sense that he swept them under the rug, right? Not not to ever be dealt with. That's a crumb. We got to get that crumb out of the way, right? It was more like the idea behind deferred payment. So I got this couch on credit and nobody ever came and took it from my house or threw me into prison because the couch was going to be paid for at a later date right? It just wasn't going to be paid for by me. It was going to be paid for by my wealthy father, right? And as one pastor put it, basically, this is so beautiful if you think about this concept. He said, basically in the Old Testament, the rain droplets of God's justice fell down into the gutters of his patient mercy and then funneled their way all down the quarters of time. Look at the, look at the beauty of that and then downspouted out on Jesus's head at the cross. That's what happened. Paul says it like this, verse 25, God put forward Christ Jesus 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Everybody say propitiation. Okay. Now that's a big word, a hard word. Maybe you read it and you're like, I didn't even know how to pronounce it. But it's an important word. It's an important word like redemption, like faith, and other words we see in this text. What does propitiation mean? Well, I hope you walk away from this text having a greater appreciation of propitiation, okay? It means this. God's justice, his wrath was appeased. It was assuaged. It was satisfied through Jesus's atoning work. If you think of our sin like as toilet water in a bowl, Jesus is the sponge that comes in and he goes into the bowl and he absorbs all the nasty out of that thing so that there is nothing left in the bowl to be poured out on our head, right? This is a part of what we understand appeasement to mean. Every speck of our sin dirt is dealt with at the cross. Nothing is ever swept under the rug, right? Our sin debt was settled by God and paid in full at the cross. There wasn't even one spiritual penny left for us to pay back. It was a propitiation made possible by Jesus' blood. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now, doesn't that make sense of the sacrificial system now in the Old Testament? A little bit better, right? Get it a little bit better. Psalm 51 says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Then what are all those animals dying for, right? I don't get it. Part of the answer is that they were symbols preparing us for and pointing us to our Redeemer, Jesus, who would shed his blood and would lay down his perfect life for us at the cross so that we could be redeemed. What about that once a year, once a year bloodbath called the Day of Atonement? You guys know what I'm talking about? If you have never heard this, this is very fascinating in Leviticus. The Day of Atonement ha- happened annually, and the priest of God would lay his hand on the head of a live goat. Okay, imagine coming up on the stage laying my hands on the head of a live goat, and then the priest would confess all the wicked rebellion of Israel's sin on the animal's head. How long do you think that would take? I mean, just to do mine, it would take an eternity, right? But the priest does that. And do you know what he does right after he transfers that sin on the head of the live goat? You know what the next thing that happens? He slits the goat's throat. It's a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus, the perfect lamb of God in our place, sacrificed in our place for our sins at the cross. His blood would be poured out to redeem us. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior, right? Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus took on our sin at the cross. What a beautiful reality. Paul says it was to show his, that's God's righteousness at the present time. I love this verse. I don't know, I love alliteration, but I love this verse for other reasons besides that. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross, justice 
and mercy meet in a beautiful collision, right? God judges sin on himself, taking its penalty so he can remain just and pouring out mercy on you and on me. God remains righteous in that moment because he judges sin perfectly, and yet he is able to declare sinners forgiven and righteous through saving faith in Jesus. I love what one pastor said. Jesus would rather endure the unspeakable horror of God's judgment against sin than sacrifice the justice of God. And that's what he did for you, church. That's what he did. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Verse 26, so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love what Martin Luther said about faith here. This has been a really encouraging quote to me over the years. He said this, especially think about this quote in light of verse 25 and 26. Martin Luther says, this is what it means to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness left. How is that possible? No anger left for me? Christ absorbed it all. There's nothing left. So now there is only kindness and grace coming to the believer through the hands of the heavenly father, right? That's what Psalm 23 says. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's graciousness Point six, justification by faith alone undermines boasting. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? Or sorry, it is excluded. By what kind of law? And he says, by a law of works. Well, of course not, Paul, not by a law of works, right? If I were justified or declared right before God on the basis of my deeds, even if it was a little bit, then we'd have every reason to boast, right? because our justification would be at least a little dependent upon us. And we'd be like, hey, God, look what we brought to the table. We're so great, right? But look how God designed salvation. A man with a broken foot might still think he has reason to boast because he can get around on crutches. A lame man might boast that he can drive around in a motorized car. I got this. I can steer this car, right? But when the quadriplegic has to be picked up and slung over the firefighter's shoulders and carried out of the burning building to safety... His boast cannot possibly be in himself. He said, all I did was call for help, right? Who's his boast in? Not himself. All of our unrighteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And according to 1 Peter 2, 5, 
all of our efforts at serving and sacrificing for God can only be offered successfully to God because they are purified or made acceptable through, the text says, Jesus, right? So the only reason why we are received and not rejected is because our lives come through Jesus, right? In Philippians 3, 5 through 11, Paul would said, save his life pre-salvation, his confidence and his boast were in these things, my family line, my ethnic background, my religious and moral accomplishments, but now he gives up all of his confidence before God so he can cling to Christ alone. Verse eight, he considers those things rubbish or trash or worse, dung, right? And Christ as his only treasure. Verse nine of Philippians three, he says it like this, being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I love what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, the man who has faith is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He is no longer, he no longer looks as anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rest on that alone. One pastor said this, Paul is saying in these verses, we must give up all our sense of identity and security, all our grounds of dignity and self-worth. We must realize that our best achievements have done nothing to justify, that boasting in them is like a drowning man clutching a fistful of $100 bills and shouting, I'm okay, I've got money. Isn't that crazy? See, there can be no bragging or boasting in self with salvation, only a humble, spirit-inspired recognition of my sin before God and a heart that can't stop speaking of the magnitude of what Christ has done on my behalf. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Point seven, justification by faith alone inspires the evangelism of all people. Paul says that one is justified apart from the works of the law or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. Paul's point is not just that mankind's problem is exactly the same. Like whatever continent you're on, whatever state in the U.S. you're, you're in, whatever home you're in, in South Carolina, we all have the same problem. Everyone is unrighteous. Everyone is judging, deserving of God's judgment and everyone cannot be justified by the works of the law. Paul's point is also this at the end of this verse, that everyone has the same solution to the problem. God will only justify those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your grandparents. It doesn't matter your traditions. It doesn't matter your situation. Asian, blacks, Hispanics, Middle Easterns, whites, God's wrath is coming on sin. 
Raindrops of judgment are coming on every tribe and tongue, and only the umbrella of Jesus Christ is able to keep that downpour from touching you. That's the point. As one pastor said, because the instrument of reception is faith rather than ethnicity, the gospel can go global. Isn't that beautiful? This means we should evangelize all people with great confidence because there is one God and one way of being in right standing with him, and it's Jesus Christ alone. But this also means for the church that we should have loving unity with people who are very different from us. You know why? Because if we're all running under the same umbrella of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for us, then we're all going to get a little close underneath there. You know what I'm saying? There's no room for any kind of division there because we know we all stand equally in need before the cross. And finally, point eight, we made it through, guys. We're almost done. Justification by faith alone establishes the need for the law. Paul ends this section with verse 31 by saying, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? His question seems to be, does the law become insignificant or obsolete because justification is by faith? And his answer, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold or establish the law. I think Paul's point is that no, we don't throw away the law as useless. We just need to remember what it's actually for. Okay, does that make sense? It, the law is essential in showing God's perfect holiness, his perfect standard. It's essential to show us what it looks like to live and thrive before him according to his ways, according to his design. It's essential to show us our need. It is the smoke detector. Is the smoke detector important in your house? It is. It's, it's essential. The law is just useless in putting out the fire, okay? Some people who like don't cook very well, they were like, amen on the smoke detector, you know? But the law is useless for putting out the fire. It's useless in justifying us before God. In that regard, Christ is our fire extinguisher. Christ is our only hope. So the law shows us that we are lawbreakers and that attempts at obedience can't save us. The gospel reminds us that Jesus is the perfect law keeper who died in our place, the place of lawbreakers, so that all who would believe would receive the forgiveness and righteousness he purchased on our behalf. This is the beauty of the gospel. A couple of things, and then we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper. If you've never believed on Christ before for your salvation, will you do it today? Will you abandon all your bad works and all your good works as a hope of being reconciled to God? And would you put your trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf? Christian, will you believe that Christ has fully forgiven your sins? That like Corey Tim Boone, I think she said it, he has placed your sins in the sea of forgetfulness and he put a big sign up. He posted a big sign and it says no fishing, right? Will you believe that? Would you not fish again for your own sins that Christ has forgiven and try to bring them back up? Would you not fish for your spouse's or your friend's sins that Christ has forgiven and bring them back up to hang over their head? Would you believe that you're truly forgiven and celebrate that? Christian, do you believe that God is still just a little angry with you? That you have to do at least something to pay him back or to get on his good side? Or do you believe actually that it's been paid in full by Christ? If we live like that, we minimize the work that Christ did for us. But if we 
repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ and we step forward in faith, we're saying Christ's death and his blood was sufficient enough. I don't have to go on moping and all that stuff. I can walk forward in freedom that Christ has purchased and the love of God that is undeservable. Third or fourth, Christian, can you choose to believe that you're justified in Christ? Not only is it just as if you've never sinned, it's just as if you've always obeyed. Your righteousness and your boast is in Jesus alone. So let's repent of self-pity. You guys ever get there on the one hand? You're like, I'm not good enough, I'm good enough. Yeah, you're not, but Jesus is. And his love is for you, right? And on the other hand, let's repent of judgmentalism and criticism of other people, right? Because our superiority is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus, his righteousness and his work on our behalf, right? Let's repent of those things and let our only boast be in Jesus. And finally, we can even think about just the interaction with with Eric and Annika at the beginning of the service, will you take this good news of God's saving and justifying work by faith to all people? Is there someone in your life right now that needs to hear the good news of the gospel and will you bring it to them? Like, I think God wants you and me to bring it to them. Let's pray and then we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper. Jesus, thank you so much for your redemption Lord, your power, thank you for your justification that is a grace gift. It is by faith alone. Lord, thank you that even the faith that we place in you for salvation is a gift of God, like your scripture says. And Lord, we're, we're amazed in your presence that you would love us, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how, marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. And we just want to celebrate that today. We pray that that news would transform the way we live, the way we treat other people, the way we go out on mission today for your glory. God, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.